All right, guys, good evening. Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 28? Exodus 28. Now, last week in our study, we looked at the uh, tabernacle enclosure, uh, along with the uh, pieces of furniture, they, they call it, for whatever reason, the uh, altar of sacrifice, the laver. I uh, looked at the uh, the fencing around the tabernacle proper. We looked at the tabernacle proper for a while. Some of it we had studied the week before, but we uh, touched on those things again. The table of showbread, the menorah, the all, a golden altar of incense, and then, of course, inside the Holy of Holies, the uh, Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top. So tonight we're going to be looking at the priesthood and the garments God specified the priests were to wear when performing their duties in the tabernacle. So, verse 1. Now Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the children of Israel. Uh, now take, I should say, Aaron, your brother, and his sons from uh, with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me as priest, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. So you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister to me as priest. And these are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a skillfully woven tunic, a turban, a sash. And so they shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and for his sons, that he may minister to me as priest. So they're going to now make these, obviously, these very um, special garments that the high priest especially, but even the other priests, were to wear. And God said he was going to fill gifted artisans with wisdom, the spirit of wisdom, uh, to be able to make the garments exactly the way God had wanted them made in every detail. And uh, the idea behind the Lord calling these garments holy is that they were only to be used in the service of God. They were holy, or in other words, set apart for that purpose. In fact, everything in the tabernacle, guys, everything that we are, have been looking at and will look at, uh, everything in the tabernacle for the service of God was called holy. It was set apart exclusively for God's use. It could not be used for any other purpose. Now, in the new covenant, we, as the people of God, are instruments that God calls holy. Those that have been set apart to God to serve him and bring him glory and uh, and to worship him and so on uh, of course we we all know Romans 12 1 where Paul said I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy acceptable to God which is your reasonable service so we as the priests of the new covenant we offer God spiritual sacrifices first and foremost it's us we offer him our lives. We lay ourselves, you might say, on the altar of sacrifice each day and say, Lord, here am I, use me. I give everything to you. All right, Everything belongs to you that I have, that I am. It's all yours. And I'm offering myself to you. That's the first holy sacrifice we offer to God as priests of the new covenant. But uh, there are others. In fact, Peter said in 1 Peter 2, 5, he said, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. 
we're priests of the new covenant, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Well, what are these spiritual sacrifices that we offer God as priests of the new covenant? Well, they're numerous. I'll just give you a few. All right. First of all, now check it out. The first offering that we offer God as priests of the new covenant is our love for other Christians, our love for the body of Christ. You don't have to turn to the, you can write them down if you want. Romans 14, verse 18. Paul said, For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Now listen, when the scriptures say in the New Testament that by doing certain things, we are offering to God something acceptable. Well, that is the language of a priest offering sacrifices to the Lord. What things are an acceptable offering to God that Paul was referring to in Romans 14? Well, uh, the whole chapter, you can read it on your own, the whole chapter deals with not making a weaker brother stumble, not grieving a brother, not destroying a brother, not uh, judging a brother. Paul is saying that if we are obedient in all these things and hold other Christians in high esteem, love them, be kind to them, treat them the way God wants them to be treated, then... Uh, we're actually offering to God an offering that is acceptable to Him, something that's well-pleasing. So loving the, the family of Christ, the body of Christ. Secondly, winning the lost, Romans 15, verses 15 to 16. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be, listen, here, here it comes, acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul is thanking God for his grace that called Paul into the ministry. Because remember, he said, I, I'm the chief of sinners, all right? Uh, you know, later on, I'm the chief of sinners, okay? I am what I am by the grace of God. So, you know, he's thanking God for his incredible grace that called him into the ministry in the first place, but then he makes this remarkable statement, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying that his ministry of winning souls to God, now for Paul, most of the folks he won to Christ were Gentiles, all right? He had a heart for his Jewish brethren. He would go to the synagogues every time he went into a new town uh, and preach Christ. He usually got thrown out or they ran him out of town on a rail. He was always forced to go to the Gentiles. He loved his countrymen, fellow Jews. But God had really opened the door for Paul to minister to the Gentiles. And so Paul says, you know, as I go out there and I witness the Gentiles and they get saved, he said, in the eyes of God, it's a sacrifice that I'm offering to him that he joyfully accepts. As a priest, this is what I'm offering to him. As a priest of the new covenant, what a beautiful way to look at evangelism. It's a beautiful offering to God that he accepts joyfully. How about giving to those in need? That's another sacrifice we can offer to God. Philippians 4, verses 17 and 18. Paul said, not that I seek the gift. See, the Philippians sent a gift of money to Paul to help in his ministry. Now, he didn't solicit it. He didn't ask him for it. But they heard he was having some trouble. So they got together and they got an offering together and they sent it to Paul. And he's thanking them for this. He said, look, not that I you know, seek the gift. I, I really wasn't asking you for it. But I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full 
having received from Epaphroditus the thing sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And Paul is saying that the offering of the saints in Philippi, well, the gift they gave him for the work of the ministry, he said to God, that was like a sweet-smelling aroma ascending to his throne. Guys, that's the language of the priesthood, of the offerings. We see in the Old Testament how that they would offer the animal sacrifices, and it would be a sweet aroma in the nostrils of God. Who doesn't like barbecue? I mean, come on. I mean, you know, I mean, just you go out of your house, and all of a sudden you smell somebody barbecuing some steaks or something. Wow, you know? All I can do is not to invite myself over, that kind of a thing, you know. But, uh, but for God, it was a sweet-smelling aroma, the language of the priesthood, the language of worship, uh, you know, giving money to people in need, you know, is something that is precious to God. It's acceptable. Um, it ascends to a throne like, throne like a sweet-smelling aroma. And of course, this is especially true when we give money to those on the mission field. Paul was in the mission field. He was serving the Lord there in Philippi and... You know, when we uh, take money that God has given us that we could spend on ourselves, but we say, you know what? I want to see the gospel reach the folks in this area of the world. Who's doing that? Who's out, what ministries are, are good ministries that are working in that part of the world? And I find out a few, and I start giving them money to be used for the work of God to bring these folks to Christ. And um, as priests of the New Covenant, guys, the love you show for your brothers and sisters in Christ, the winning of souls for Jesus, giving to others in need. It's all part of the spiritual sacrifice that we offer to God as priests of the new covenant. And of course, we could add to that list praise. All right. Hebrews 13, 15. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. And so there's other things that we can offer to God, but I think you get the idea. When you read your New Testament, you see the language, you know, like, you know, an acceptable offering, a sweet-smelling aroma. It's all the language of the priesthood. And find out what it's connected to, because if you do those things, you are offering to God sacrifices that bless his heart. All right, getting into the uh, garments of the priesthood. First of all, the ephod. Okay, verse 5. They shall take the gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine linen, and they shall make the ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen artistically worked. It shall have two shoulder straps joined at its two edges, uh, and so it shall be joined together. And the intricately woven band of the ephod which is on it shall be of the same workmanship made of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. Then you shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on one stone and six names on the other stone in order of their birth with the work of an engraver in stone like the engravings of a signet you shall engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall set them in settings of gold. You shall put the two stones on the shoulders of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of uh, Israel. So Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders as a memorial. You shall also make settings of gold and you shall make two chains of pure gold like braided cords 
and fasten the braided chains to the settings. Now, a lot of commentators aren't sure exactly what the ephod was all about. From my studies today, let me tell you what I believe it was. The ephod seems to have been two long panels of beautifully embroidered linen fabric connected together by two straps of the same embroidered linen. And the high priest would then slip his head through the opening created by the shoulder straps, and the panels would come down on either side, front and back, down to his ankles, and pulled tight to his body by a sash he wore around his waist. Now, when you read the Old Testament, you'll find different references to ephods. The priests themselves wore other kinds of ephods, simpler. In fact, when David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant back, interestingly, we'll study that this week, Sunday morning, when David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, 2 Samuel 6, he wore an ephod, a linen ephod. It was a very simple thing. It's like an undergarment. In fact, his wife, Michal, took him to task for dancing around in his underwear, basically. It's like a nightgown that you would see some, some of these old movies, you know, and uh, maybe like the uh, Christmas Carol, you know, where he wore the, the gown to bed. It was just like a nightshirt, basically, all right? Um, so there were other ephods that were very simple. But the ephod described here, and worn only by the high priest was unique, guys. It was only one like it. It was unique, and it really identified the high priest as the number one mediator between God and his people. And the main way this ephod was unique was that it had two onyx stones that were set in settings of gold attached to the straps that connected the front and back of the ephod together. All right? So these onyx stones were, were attached to the st shoulder straps, and on each one, so there's two all together, one on each shoulder, on each onyx stone was engraved the names of six tribes uh, in their birth order, in their birth order. And these onyx stones, as we said, were put in settings of gold, and uh, they had these gold braided chains. Now, try to picture this in your mind's eye, okay? You have on the shoulders the two onyx stones set in settings of gold. And then you had these two braided gold chains. They came in the front, connecting to the two stones on the gold setting, and on the back, the same thing. So these two braided gold chains that you know were on the front uh, of the ephod and on the back, connecting these two stones together. And the thing that God wanted to communicate, and this is something for all of us who are priests of the New Covenant to think about, the thing God wanted to communicate through this was that every time the high priest came into God's presence, especially on the day of Yom Kippur, wearing this ceremonial garment that, uh, you know, with the names of the 12 tribes engraved on these stones fastened to his shoulders, was that he was bearing the nation to God. He was carrying them to God. This became his primary ministry carrying God's people into his presence constantly to pray and intercede for them as their mediator. Just like Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who has ascended back into heaven, who ever lives to make intercession for us, Hebrews 7.25. Uh, he's constantly bearing us to the Father, you know, bringing, carrying us, as it were, on his shoulders, all right, 
That was the high priest, and that was something God wanted to communicate to the high priest, that, look, you are my mediator. The people are not worthy to come directly to me as of yet. The new covenant, that would be different. But I want you to understand that every, you know, every time you put the ephod on, that you realize that you are, you are bearing the, the nation to me in prayer. Very important ministry, right? Something that God wants all of us who are priests to understand that we have no greater ministry than to carry our brothers and sisters and family to God in prayer constantly. Constantly. Now, that then brings us to the breastplate. Verse 15. God said, you shall make the breastplate of judgment. Artistically woven according to the workmanship of the ephod, you shall make it of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen, you shall make it. It shall be doubled into a square. A span shall be its length, and a span shall be its width. And you shall put settings of stones in it, four rows of stones. The first row shall be a sardius, a topaz, and an emerald. This shall be the first row. The second row shall be a turquoise, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold settings. And the, and the stones shall have the names of the sons of Israel, twelve according to their names, like the engravings of a signet, each one with its own name, and they shall be according to the twelve tribes. You shall make chains for the breastplate at the end, like braided cords of pure gold, and you shall make two rings of gold for the breastplate, and put the two rings on the two ends of the breastplate, then you shall put the two braided chains of gold in the two rings which are on the ends of the breastplate, and the other ends of the two of the two braided chains you shall fasten to the two settings, and put them on the shoulder straps of the ephod in the front. And you shall make two rings of gold and put them on the two ends of the breastplate, on the edge of it, which is on the inner side of the ephod, and two other rings of gold you shall make and put them on the two shoulder straps underneath the ephod toward its front, right at the seam above the intricately, intricately woven band of the ephod. Uh, they shall bind the breastplate by means of its rings to the rings of the ephod using a blue cord so that it is above the intricately woven band of the ephod. Riveting reading, I'm sure. Uh, and so that the breastplate does not come loose from the ephod. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate of judgment over his heart when he goes into the holy place as a memorial before the Lord continually. Um, you think God is into details? You think he's maybe a little picky about details? He's sure very specific, isn't he? You know, does it tell us that when God says something, he wants us to listen. He wants us to obey everything he has said down to the smallest detail. I think so. I think so. Now, the breastplate looked kind of like a small version of the ephod. It was uh, made of beautifully embroidered linen, just like the ephod was, that measured roughly 20 inches long by 10 inches wide. It was then folded in half and sewn on three sides so that the breastplate became a pouch, a pouch that measured about 10 inches uh, wide by 10 inches, what does it say here, long or high, 10 by 10, roughly. 
uh, it talks about a span. The span was the distance between your little finger and your thumb, roughly 8 inches to 10 inches, depending on how big a person's hand was. Now, I measured my hand. My hands are kind of small, and my span was 8 inches. So I'm thinking that the ephod was probably about 10 inches square. All right, 10 inches square. And even though the, the breastplate was a separate piece all by itself, now, try to hear me out. It's hard to read this and, and, and to know exactly what God is saying. Let me just give you what I think he's saying, and you can reread it and come to your own conclusion. But even though the breastplate was a separate piece all by itself, it was always attached to the ephod by golden rings in the corners of the breastplate and uh, gold rings that were placed on the front of those gold settings on the shoulder pieces, the onyx stones, settings, settings of gold. So there were gold rings on those, all right? And somehow, as you read this, somehow there was a golden braided cord and a blue uh, cord, okay? So uh, one was made of uh, a braided chain, one was a blue cord. Together they bound somehow this breastplate to the ephod. It went through the gold ring, somehow it connected, tied, whatever they did to fasten the breastplate to the ephod. But when they did that, it, it was like one unit. That's why in the Bible sometimes uh, both pieces are simply referred to, referred to as the ephod. Because in the eyes of the Jews, they were really kind of the one and the same, the ephod and the breastplate. And of course, the breastplate had four rows of three stones uh, on it. And it lists the various rows and the stones and uh, each stone had to have engraved on it one of the tribes of Israel. And um, the idea was that God wanted to communicate between the, the onyx stones on the priest's shoulders, which had the names of the 12 tribes, and then the breastplate, which had all these individual stones, 12 in all. Uh, it was that, look, as my priest, you're not only to carry my people before me constantly in prayer on your shoulders, but you're also to keep the nation close to your heart close to your heart. In other words, guys, God's ministry was never to be a burden or a duty. It was to be a labor of love. A labor of love. Because these were people that God had redeemed. And when Paul was addressing the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he starts out by saying, look, God has called you to be shepherds of his flock those that he purchased with his own blood. They're precious to him. Make sure they're precious to you. You never take advantage of the flock of God, the people of God. Read Ezekiel 34. God indicts the evil shepherds of Israel who were only in it to fleece the flock, to take advantage of the flock. They saw God's people as a way to enrich themselves of course we don't have those charlatans around today so it doesn't really apply to us in our day but but paul was laying out what a good shepherd was all about you can read acts 20 uh, to see what he had to say but he's got to say look i want the nation close to your heart you're you're my mediator you're my high priest and i want you to love these people as i do of course who would replace the family of Aaron as high priest in the New Covenant? Jesus Christ, who would be of the order of Melchizedek. 
a greater priest, high priesthood than the Aaronic priesthood. But verse 30 is interesting, guys. And you shall put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and the Thummim. And they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. So Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. Now we've talked about this. Scholars are not sure what the, the Urim and the Thummim were. We know they were kept in the breastplate pouch and were used in some way to determine the will of God. The words in Hebrew literally mean lights and perfections. Although, as I was studying today, some scholars believe the original meaning was lights and darks. Lights and darks. And when the people wanted a judgment from God, they would go to the high priest, and uh, he would inquire of the Lord using the Urim and Thummim in some way. And uh, some have suggested they were actually white and black stones, lights and darks, okay? Uh, and because in the Hebrew, both words are in the plural, some believe that there were actually numerous white stones and black stones in the breastplate uh, so that, you know, if people came with multiple questions, the priest could keep reaching. And the idea was, look, you would uh, come to the high priest with a yes or no question. Shall we go up against the Philistines or not, Lord? And he would reach in there and pull out a stone. And, of course, white would say, mean yes, go for it. Black would mean no. And, and if people came with multiple questions, he just kept, you know, putting his hand in and pulling out stones, okay? Um, that's about as best an explanation as I've ever heard. In fact, I don't really know of anybody that I've read that has anything different to say about it, okay? Um, and, of course, this system could also have been applied to legal cases where the guilt or innocence of a person was determined uh, through the Urim and Thummim. If they were white and black stones, of course, you know, if, if the case was so difficult, nobody knew what judgment to make. Go to the high priest. All right, inquire of God. Is this person guilty or not? Put his hand in the breastplate. Pull out a white stone, innocent. Black stone, guilty. And if that is true, there's a very interesting verse. Turn to Revelation 2. I love this because I think it's talking about this very thing. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, the Lord Jesus is speaking. And he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a what? A white stone. Which means what? Innocent. Innocent. Or accepted. Right? We have a practice where even today we, we hear the term blackballed. Uh, rejected. Uh, you know, okay? Where a white stone meant accepted. All right? Those who overcome. And how do we overcome? He who over, this is how he who overcomes the world overcomes the world is by his what? Faith. So we don't overcome the world by working real hard. It's our faith in Christ. He's the one who conquered the world. We're in him. We're therefore more than conquerors ourselves. And when we stand before him at the rapture, he is going to give us a white stone and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So we are going to stand before the Lord, not in our own righteousness, but in his righteousness because of our faith. And he will hand to us a white stone, which means you're innocent, you are accepted, 
come on in. Okay, come on in. Now, of course, today, guys, we don't cast lots to determine God's will. We don't use white and black stones to determine God's will. We read His Word, and we pray and let the Spirit speak to our hearts and direct our lives. But there's a lot of Christians who, are, who have a hard time discerning God's will for their lives in a practical sense. Let me say this to you. God has revealed His, His will in general in the pages of Scripture. And we have studies on this. You can look them up or get into them. There are things that God has spoken in His Word that are His general will for all His people, that we be sanctified, that you know we um, uh, that even that we suffer for His name's sake, and so on and so forth. There are things that are, are His general will for all of us. All right. Yeah, but I, I need to know what job to take. I need to know what house to buy. What person to marry? Okay, I get that. Those are that's that's the personal will of God. But here's the deal: if you're not really getting into the Word and finding out what God has said in general and doing those things, it's be a lot harder for God to direct you in the personal matters of your life. It's like one pastor said, picking up on this, using the urim the urim and the thummim. He kind of likened it this way. He says, there are, a lot of, there are a lot of Christians who agonize over knowing God's will for their lives individually. The problem is they aren't using and thumbing their Bibles very much. I kind of liked it. All right. You know, we don't use the Urim and Thummim, but we, you know, using and thumbing our Bibles. Very important. And uh, the more we get into the Word and begin to do what God has revealed for all of us as Christians to do, it would be more easy then to discern God's will for our lives individually. Okay. Well, back to Exodus 28. We are going to get into some of the other uh, garments of the priesthood. Verse 31. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. There shall be an opening for his head in the middle of it. It shall have a woven binding all around its opening, like the opening uh, in a coat of mail, so that it does not tear. And upon its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue purple and scarlet all around its hem and bells of gold between them all around a golden bell and a pomegranate a golden bell and a pomegranate upon the hem of the robe all around and it shall be upon Aaron when he ministers and its sound will be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord the word place there is in italics so it, it says you know the bells will be heard when he goes into the holy before the Lord. And it's probably referring to more than anything else, the holy of holies, okay, as he's ministering. And um, before the Lord, when he comes out, that he may not die. So again, under the ephod, the priest was to wear a blue robe, which was basically a long rectangular piece of cloth with a hole cut in the middle uh, through which he would put his head, of course, and then the, the, uh, the robe would hang down you know, underneath the ephod, the ephod would go over it, and uh, the hole where his head went, uh, you know, everything was pulled tight to his waist by the sash, as I said, but the hole where his head went through, God says you're to embroider it all the way around, uh, you know, so it doesn't rip. I mean, the guy's putting it over his head a lot. Uh, you want to make that a little more, you know, like the, um, the uh, edge of a piece of carpet, how they do that with the edge there. They make it real tough so the whole thing doesn't unravel, but that's the basic idea. God wanted it embroidered all around the opening of this 
this blue robe, and uh, then he would slip his head through the hole. It would hang down front and back uh, down to his ankles, and then the ephod, of course, would go over it. And on the bottom of the hem of this robe, God said, you were to sew little golden bells and these pomegranates made up of woven material. Okay, he talks about that. And uh, they were to be staggered. Uh, a bell, a pomegranate, a bell, a pomegranate, all the way around the, uh, the hem of this rope. The pomegranates, of course, spoke of fruitfulness, as in our service to God is to be fruitful. You remember what Jesus said to his disciples uh, just before he went to the cross in John 15. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and uh, appointed that you should go and bear what? Fruit and that your fruit should remain. Well, listen, if God is calling you into the ministry, as we're going to see, he will anoint you for that ministry whom the Lord calls he what? Equips. And if God has called you and God has then anointed you, your ministry is going to be fruitful. Because he'll make sure of it if you're a yielded instrument for his glory, for his use. Now, these golden bells we've talked about many, many times. They had a very important purpose. If you're new with us, let me just share it with you. Of course, they were on the bottom of the high priest robe, the garment he wore. And so every time he moved around, the little golden bells would tinkle. Okay, I mean, every, think about it. tinkle, tinkle, tinkle. Everywhere he moved, tinkle, tinkle, tinkle. They, you keep, kept hearing the tinkling of these bells, right? That was important because on the day of Yom Kippur, when he went into the Holy of Holies to minister to the Lord, you know what? That day for him was not a happy day. That was a terrifying day. Now, as we said last week, for the people, they looked forward to the day of Yom Kippur because all the sins that they had forgotten about or had never brought an offering for, were done away with. So for them, their conscience was clear. They felt clean. All the weight of sin had been lifted. For the poor high priest, who had to go into the Holy of Holies, and he can only do it once a year, well, if there was anything that was not right in his heart before God, when he went into the Holy of Holies, God was striking dead and of course you didn't want to go in there to get him because you'd be struck dead nobody went to the holy of holies but the high priest so they would put a rope around his ankle and then they'd be listening okay you know and they hear him walking around tinkle tinkle okay good 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 tinkle you know they hear him walking doing his thing that's great great all of a sudden the noise stops thud oh that's bad no no that's bad pull him out you know and so this is, you know, the reason, I think the main reason God wanted these little bells tied on the hem of his robe, right? Well, verse 36, the Lord goes on, You shall also make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holiness to the Lord. And you shall put it on the blue cord, or on a blue cord, that it may be on the turban, it shall be on the front of the turban, so it shall be on Aaron's forehead, that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things, which the children of Israel hallow in all their holy gifts, and it shall always be on his forehead, that they may be accepted before the Lord. So this little plate, little gold plate, 
was attached to a blue cord, and the blue cord was wrapped around the turban so that it hung just kind of covering his forehead, this little gold plate. And every time he put it on, it reminded him that his main, this was a principle that was to govern his life, holiness to the Lord. It was what his ministry was all about. It was what should dominate his thinking. I am a priest of the Most High God. My life is to be holy. That was the thing he always needed to remember. And also, as he walked out in front of the people and they saw him, of course, this little gold plate was hanging down, uh, covering his forehead. You know, it, it, it was a message to them as well that this was something that was to govern their lives, something that was to control the way they thought. Just by looking at the high priest, he was like a walking billboard, okay? Holiness to the Lord. That's what they were supposed to be. That, they were God's people, and they were to live in a, a holy life uh, for his glory. Verse 39, you shall skillfully weave the tunic of fine linen thread and you shall make the turban of fine linen and you shall make the sash of woven work for Aaron's sons you shall make tunics and you shall make sashes for them and you shall make hats for them for glory and beauty so you shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with him you shall anoint them consecrate them and sanctify them that they may minister to me as priests. So this was all in preparation for now Aaron and his sons to become priests of God. And uh, one of the things that God said they had to have happen first was they had to be anointed, consecrated, and sanctified before they could serve the Lord as priests. One commentator put it this way. He said, um, anointed describes the application of the sacred oil upon the head. In the consistent idiom of the Bible, it represents the filling and continual reliance upon the power and work of the Holy Spirit. So the anointing oil in the Old Testament was really symbolic, emblematic of the Holy Spirit. And the idea was God had called you into the ministry. Now the oil was poured on your head or you were anointed with it, which meant God had now anointed you with his spirit for the work he was calling you to do. You don't ever want to do a work for God that you haven't been anointed to do. I mean, if you've ever tried, you know it was a very frustrating and fruitless experience. Because unless God's anointing you for that work, it's going nowhere. It's going nowhere, all right? Secondly, they were to be consecrated. The author says the translation of this word is from two Hebrew words, literally meaning the filling of an open hand and signifies the perfect equipment of the anointed one for the discharge of that ministry. We just said it, right? Whom the Lord calls, he what? Equips. What does this mean? It means that God has given to each person he calls into ministry the tools, the giftings, whatever they need to accomplish the work God has called them to do. Look, I experience this every single week of my life in ministry. I cannot tell you, in fact, it happens almost every Sunday. It just happened again last Sunday, where I take the passage. I know we're in the passage. This is where we're going to be. I have no idea what to do with the passage yet. I start reading it and rereading it and praying over it. All right, Lord, where do you, you know, your word is so incredible. It's like a multifaceted diamond. I could come at it from all different directions. But what do you want 
to say to your people in our church this Sunday. And I'll keep praying over it and keep rereading it. And then eventually a main thought emerges, you know. And, and then I, I think, okay, I know where to go with this, you know. And yet I'm still praying and I'm writing. And all of a sudden, the message takes a completely different turn. I wasn't even planning on going here. But one thought led to another. And all of a sudden, the Spirit's just leading. And it, when, I, when I finish the message, I look at it and go, Lord, this is a total work of your Spirit. I had no idea of going here. I'm amazed. I mean, I'm looking at something that I know I wrote, but I didn't really write. He, he's equipping, okay, us for the work he's called us to do. So uh, consecrate. <laughs> A hand open saying, Lord, here I am, but I need the tools. That's what he was doing there. And then sanctify, the author says, means literally to make clean and refers to the spiritual and moral separation of a priest from all defilement. Well, how important is that in any ministry? That we make sure that we are walking in purity and holiness because as someone has once said, there is nothing more awesome than a holy instrument in the hands of a holy God. Verse 42, And you shall make for them, the priests, linen trousers to cover their nakedness. Uh, they shall reach from the waist to the thighs. Uh, they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they come into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place uh, that they do not incur iniquity and die. It shall be a statute forever to him and his descendants after him. Uh, again, guys, <laughs> it was uh, rather dangerous to serve the Lord as a priest back then. If you came into his presence, you had better make sure that your life was right with him. Otherwise, you could be struck dead. And notice here, that included not being properly covered. Well, God didn't want you on display, okay? God didn't want the instrument on display. Cover up. We don't want people looking at you, all right? It's not about you, it's about me. And I sometimes think how God must feel when his people come to church not covered so well. Now, I'm not speaking about our church in particular. I'm just speaking about the church of Jesus Christ in general and how there are folks who I have seen come to church and I'm like, wow, how inappropriate is that? And did you dress to come to church because you wanted to bring God glory or did you dress to draw attention to yourself? God says, I won't accept any service where the instrument tries to become the focus. Also, notice, and we've talked about this, but I want you to also notice that everything the priests wore was to be made of linen, right? Linen. God forbid them from wearing anything that was made from wool when they served him. Why? Because wool is hot. Linen breathes. Linen is light. It breathes. And the idea was that God didn't want the priests perspiring in their service for him. You see, this is what I believe God was communicating with these priests back then. That their service to him wasn't to be a burden or laborious or rigorous. It was to be joyful. All right, It was to be done in the strength of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, guys, when we see all the perspiration going on today in the work of God, 
Well, it tells us that much of it is being done in the energy of the flesh, not in the power of the Holy Spirit. God wants our service to him to be a joy, not a cumbersome burden, like Jeremiah had fallen into in his day. He had a rough ministry, Jeremiah did. He ministered 46 years and pretty much nobody got saved. How'd you like that ministry? Okay. And in the meantime, during those 46 years, I mean, there was a lot of hostile crowds he was preaching to. And they beat him up, threw him down wells and so on. I mean, he had a rough time, right? So he comes to a point where he starts saying a, a phrase that God hated. He was walking around going, oh, the burden of the Lord. Oh, the burden of the Lord. And finally God had enough and said, Jeremiah, you know, you're going around saying something that I hate. If you don't knock it off, I'm never going to talk to you again. And if you're a prophet, that's a big deal. You're going around saying the burden of the Lord, the burden of the I don't give any burdens, he said. If you've got burdens you're carrying, they're yours, not mine. Because I don't get, my yoke is easy, Jesus would go on to say, my burden is what? Light. You know, God never lays on us heavy burdens. He wants our service for him to be done in the power and strength of the Holy Spirit, which means he's doing the work. I'm just kind of going along for the ride. And I can be joyful. I can be excited. Because it doesn't depend on me. Jesus said, I will build my church. What a load off of a pastor's shoulders. I don't have to build Jesus' church. He's the best carpenter in the universe. He knows how to build his church. I just do what he's called me to do. Preach the word and faithfully in the power of the Spirit. Love him with all my heart. Make sure I'm in communion with him through prayer and so on and so forth. And then just get out of the way and let him do what he's going to do. And only what he can do. So God wants our service to be inspired, not perspired, I guess. <laughs> chapter 29. In this chapter, we see Aaron and his sons consecrated for the ministry. Verse 1. And this is what you shall do to them, to hallow them for ministering to me as priests. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cake, uh, cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers anointed with oil. You shall make them of wheat flour. Don't ask me why. Uh, you shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket uh, with the bull and the two rams. And Aaron and his sons you shall bring to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and you shall wash them with water, signifying they were being purified for their service. Uh, verse 5, Then you shall take the garments, put the tunic on Aaron and the robe of the ephod, the ephod and the breastplate, and gird him with the intricately woven band uh, of the ephod. You shall put the turban on his head and put the holy crown on, his, on the turban, and you shall take the anointing oil poured on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put tunics on them. And you shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and put the hats on them. The priesthood shall be theirs for a perpetual statute. And you shall consecrate Aaron and his sons. You shall also have the bull brought before the tabernacle of meeting. And Aaron and his sons shall put their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. You shall take some of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger and pour all the blood beside the base of the altar. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver, and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar. Those were always offered to God alone. 
Verse 14, but the flesh of the bull with its skin and its offal, uh, you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. So Aaron and his sons were anointed with oil, again, emblematic of the Holy Spirit, uh, that God was anointing them for ministry. But before the priest could offer sacrifices for others, their sin first had to be dealt with because they themselves were sinners. And they couldn't be used by God to, to uh, atone for anyone else's sins unless their sins were first atoned for. So that was the first thing God does. He has a, a sin offering offered on their behalf. In this case, it was done by them laying their hands on a bull, no doubt confessing their sins on the, you know, as their hands were laid on the bull, they were confessing their sins. And, of course, the idea was their sins were being transferred to the animal who was then killed in their place as a substitute, as a substitute. Verse 15, You shall also take one ram, and Aaron and his son shall put their hand on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram, and you shall take its blood and sprinkle it all around the altar. Then you shall cut the ram in pieces, wash its entrails, its legs, and put them with its pieces and with uh, its head, and you shall burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. And uh, you, you shall also take the other ram, and Aaron and his son shall put their hands on the head of the ram, then you shall kill the ram and take some of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron, on the tip of the right ear of his sons, on the thumb of their right hand, and on the big toe of their right foot, and sprinkle the blood all around the altar. And you shall take some of the blood that is on the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and on his garments, on his sons and on the garments of his sons with him, and he and his garments shall be hallowed, and his sons and his sons' garments with him. Also you shall take the fat of the ram, the fat uh, tail, uh, the fat that covers the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver and the two kidneys, and the fat on them, and the right thigh, for it is a ram of consecration. So the first ram, there's two, after the bull was offered as a sin offering, the first ram then was offered to God as a burnt offering. And uh, in the burnt offering, the animal was completely burned up to God, completely consumed in the fire. Nothing was given back to the person to eat. We'll see uh, that was allowed with other offerings. This was a, an offering of consecration. And the idea with consecration is that God wants all of us. That's why the entire sacrifice was burned up, was given to God. God does not allow us to offer him partial consecration. Uh, well, God, you can have 50% of my life. I want to keep the other half for me. God says, no, it doesn't work that way. Uh, either I'm Lord of all or I'm not Lord at all kind of a thing. Okay? But uh, this, I believe, this first ram was offered to God. It spoke of sanctification. That their life now belonged completely to God. Yes, as priests, but would apply to all of God's people in the New Covenant, of course. Uh, the second ram was then killed, and the blood was placed on Aaron and his sons, on the tip of their right ear, the, uh, their right thumb, and on the big toe of their right foot. And this guy spoke of daily consecration. 
daily. The other one was kind of a positional uh, sanctification. The kind of sanctification that we all entered into when we gave our lives to Christ. Positionally, we were set apart from the world. Uh, we were set apart for God. We were now instruments to be used only for His glory, right? Well, that was positional. But then every day we want to walk in practical consecration. And that was the idea, I believe, be, behind the blood being placed on the right ear, the right thumb, the big toe of the right foot. Basically, the priests were saying, I consecrate my ear to hear the voice of God. I consecrate my hands to do the work of God. And I consecrate my feet to walk in the path of God. That was the idea. I was giving my whole life to him. Every day, it spoke of a life of total practical consecration and devotion to God every single day. Also, the priest's garments, guys, were then sprinkled with this blood. Can you imagine? You know, I don't know, maybe just me. Here they take all this time to make these beautiful garments. I mean, beautiful stuff. You would have saw the stuff just hot off the press or whatever they did. You know, all this handmade, intricately woven. You know, if you would have saw the priest standing there dressed in the blue robe, the ephod, the breastplate, the turban, all this beautiful, beautiful priestly garment. Then what does God do? I just sprinkle blood all over him. Well, look, it, that was a little preview because when the priests served God in the tabernacle, later temple, offering the sacrifices, think of a butcher shop. It was a bloody mess. A bloody mess. Sin is messy. It's not neat. It's not clean. It's messy. And it took a great deal to clean it up. The precious blood of our Savior. He did the work. Only he can do the work. He did the work. But what does it say to us in the New Covenant? That as God sprinkled their clothes with the blood of sanctification and consecration, we are to wrap ourselves in righteousness and consecration well, yeah, every day. But, of course, the Bible says that when we accepted Christ, he gave to us his robes of righteousness. But every day we are to put on, as Paul said in Ephesians, we are to put on the new man. Put on the new man. What is he talking about? Our outward behavior. We're, we're no longer the way we once were. And we're to prove it every day by walking in holiness and purity and and, and serving God the way he has called us to, as, as sanctified instruments for his glory and so on. So every day we are to wrap ourselves in the garments of the new man, which is a, a, a redeemed life. Verse 23, he talks about now other things that were offered to God. One loaf of bread, one cake made with oil, and one wafer from the basket of the unleavened bread that is before the Lord. And you shall put all these in the hands of, the, of Aaron and in the hands of his sons, and you shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. And you shall receive them back from their hands and burn them on the altar as a burnt offering, uh, as a sweet aroma before the Lord. It is an offering made by fire to the Lord. Then you shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's consecration and wave it as a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be your portion. So, they could take the breast of the lamb and wave it before the Lord. That was a, it was called a wave offering. And you just kind of waved it and said, Lord, this belongs to you. But here God says, yes, after you offer it to me, I'm going to give it back to you. And you can eat this portion of the sacrifice. 
This gets into what was called the fellowship offerings. Uh, offerings of burnt offerings, the whole animal was burned up. Consecration. But in other offerings, like the fellowship offerings, some of the animal was offered to God, the rest was roasted in the fire, given back to you, and you would eat it. And the idea was that God got part of the animal, you were now being fed by part of the animal, and you were becoming one with God, having fellowship with him, was the idea. And uh, then you have the thigh of the heave offering, which is raised, uh, of that which is for Aaron and uh, of that which is for his sons. It shall be from the children of Israel for Aaron and his sons by a statute forever. For it is a heave offering, and it shall be a heave offering from the children of Israel from the sacrifices of the peace offerings, that is, their heave offering to the Lord. Well, what is all that? Well, you know, some parts of the animal you can eat right? Now, if it was a smaller part of the animal, you could wave it before the Lord. If it was like a hindquarter, it was a heave offering. You had to pick it up, right? And that's all that's going on. It was just the size of the part of the animal you could eat, whether it was a wave offering or a heave offering, you know, if you could deadlift it, okay, and offer it to God, and you know, then you could go ahead and have a barbecue or finish it off somewhere with your family, all right? Verse 29, And the holy garments of Aaron shall be his sons after him. So after Aaron dies and so on, and the priesthood is, you know, the, the sons would constantly be growing up and taken over for their fathers. And the holy garments of Aaron shall be his sons after him, to be anointed in them and to be consecrated in them. That son who becomes priest in his place shall put them on for seven days, when he enters the tabernacle of meeting to minister in the holy place, and you shall take the ram of the consecration and boil its flesh in the holy place, then Aaron and his son shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. They shall eat those things with which the atonement was made to consecrate and to sanctify them, but an outsider shall not eat them because they are holy. So this was only for the priests, and every time a new priest would come up, would be old enough to take over, then they would have to go through this little thing where he would have to be sanctified and consecrated and all. Uh, the word atonement there in verse 33 is the Hebrew word kafar, which means covering. And of course, we all know that these animal sacrifices only temporarily covered uh, the sins of the people. Uh, they could never really take sin away completely. Only the Lamb of God could do that, as John the Baptist pointed to Jesus in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 29, it said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, because the blood of goats and bulls could never really wash us clean, as uh, Paul said in Hebrews. Uh, only the precious blood of Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, could do that. Verse 34, And if any of the flesh of the consecration offerings or of the bread remains until, until the morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten, because it is holy. Thus you shall do to Aaron and his sons according to all that I have commanded you. Seven days you shall consecrate them, and you shall offer a bull every day as a sin offering for atonement. Uh, you shall cleanse the altar when you make atonement for it, and you shall anoint it to sanctify it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and sanctify it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar must be holy." Now, the idea was this. When you brought an offering to God and it was laid on the altar of sacrifice, as soon as it touched that altar, it belonged to God. 
you couldn't take it back, okay? And if any remained until the morning, well, you couldn't go there and eat off it because it, it was holy. It belonged to God. And every day they would have to clean the altar and kind of re-sanctify because the altar had to be holy. So what did they do with the stuff that was burned up uh, but was not burned up completely yet? I mean, some ashes and things that was left on the altar from the, the sacrifice of the day before. What we read later on, what God said was, you are to take the ashes of the altar of sacrifice, and every day you're to take them outside the camp of Israel and, and bury them in a holy place, because they're holy. But you're supposed to make way for the new sacrifices. What is God teaching us? Look, everything we offer to God, any sacrifice we give to Him, is precious, it's holy, and He considers it holy, but he doesn't want you, you know, focusing on it for days and days and weeks. Every day should be a new time of giving him fresh consecration, sacrifice. I mean, the stuff you did, he puts in a holy place. He will never forget the things we do for him. We will be rewarded on the day we stand before Jesus for everything we've done for him. He just doesn't want us to say, oh, Lord, remember what I did for you five years ago? Remember that, Lord? The Lord is saying, you know what, that was wonderful. That was five years ago. I've taken that off the altar a long time ago. What are you doing for me today in the way of sacrificing your life for my glory and so on? Okay? I, I even think this especially applies to us. When we got saved, we basically laid our lives on the altar of sacrifice and said, God, I belong to you. Remember that? And what does God say? Well, once you lay your life on the altar of sacrifice for me, once you become one of my children, my servants, you don't get to take yourself back. You belong to me now, okay? You belong to me. And I just see that as another uh, example of how once we're saved, we're, all, we're saved forever. We're saved forever, you know? We're bond slaves. Once a man voluntarily placed himself into slavery to another man, remember that? The all pin his ear to the doorpost of the house, put a gold ring, okay? a free man who chose to be uh, a bond slave to another man for the rest of his life, once he did that, six months down the road, he, he couldn't come to the master and say, you know, I'm not digging this bond slave thing anymore. I, I'm going to go. Oh, no, you can't go. You belong to me. You've relinquished all rights to your life to me. Now, who that, that really knows Jesus is going to say to him one day, I'm tired of being your bond slave. I'm going to go back to the world. If you really know Jesus, I don't believe you would ever want to do that. Now, John did say, 1 John 2.19, many have gone out from us, but they were never really one of us. Because if they had really been one of us, genuinely saved people of God, they would never have gone out from us, left. But they've left because it proved they were never genuine. Never genuine. Now, that's not talking about those who backslide. We can all backslide at times. I'm talking about those who at one point renounce Christ, renounce the faith. They're gone and they never come back. To me, they never knew him in the first place. Verse 38. Now, this is what you shall offer on the altar two lambs of the first year, day by day, continually, one lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. 
with the one lamb shall be one-tenth of an ephah of flour mixed with one-fourth of a hen of pressed oil and one-fourth of a hen of wine as a drink offering. And the other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and you shall offer uh, with it the grain offering and the drink offering as in the morning for a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak with you. So a lamb was offered every morning and every evening to make atonement, listen, for sins of ignorance. Sins that the people had committed that didn't realize they had committed sins. All right, this is for the nation now. They were still sins, and they still had to be atoned for, but the people didn't realize they had done something wrong. Therefore, there was no sacrifice brought to make uh, atonement for it. So God made provision right here, that every morning at daybreak and every evening at twilight, a lamb was offered, and he talks about how to do it, for the sins of the people, for sins of ignorance. For sins of ignorance. Didn't Job do this for his sons? In Job 1, verse 5, after they would have a, a, a time of feasting, maybe it was a, uh, a day of celebration for some reason, every time they had finished celebrating, you know, having a little party, then while they were sleeping the next morning, Job would get up early and offer sacrifices for them. For he said, you know, what if they cursed God in their heart and didn't realize it? Or what if they did something wrong and didn't know it? He offered for them these sacrifices to cover the sins that they didn't realize they had done. Remember what David prayed? He said, Lord, cleanse me from secret sins. Verse 43, And there I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. So I will consecrate the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate both Aaron and his sons to minister to me as priests. I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Listen, guys, their fellowship with God was based on positional sanctification. God brought them out of Egypt and made them his covenant people. And then also practical consecration. Every day, how they, they, they acted, they, uh, their lives, how they walked with the Lord, uh, allowed God to continually have fellowship with them. But, but listen, God didn't dwell with them while they were in Egypt. They weren't his people, right? It wasn't until he redeemed them out of Egypt entered into a covenant with them, and they became his covenant people, and uh, then put a system in place to atone for their sins on a daily basis. Only then could God dwell with them in the sense of having ongoing fellowship with them, being in their, being in their midst, and so on. And, and, and again, it applies to us, obviously. God didn't dwell with us. He wasn't, didn't have fellowship with us before we were saved. It wasn't until he redeemed us out of the world, because Egypt was the type of the world, it wasn't until he um, redeemed us out of the world we became his covenant people, the new covenant people. Of course, there was not a system of sacrifices put in place for us to atone for our sins every day. Jesus Christ died once for all. But we wash in the water of the word every day to maintain purity, 
We confess our sins, John said. If we say we have no sins, we deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sins each day, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and allow us to continue to have fellowship with him. So I see a lot of parallels, of course, uh, in what God was doing here among his people, especially in the priesthood and how we are priests of the new covenant. And uh, we will continue looking at these uh, next week as we, uh, most of chapter 30 we've already covered. We'll just read those parts, but uh, pick up a few things, then move forward. And of course, in chapter 32, didn't take God's people very long after they promised that they would obey him and want to be his covenant people before they had Aaron build a golden calf. So we'll see that whole mess uh, when we get there. Father, we thank you. For your word, Lord, we thank you for your grace. Of course, in the new covenant, Lord, Jesus, our great high priest, offered himself for our sins. And now is in heaven ever living to make intercession for us on a daily basis. And Lord, that gives us grace to walk with you, to have fellowship with you every single day. Father, we just pray you would work in our lives as your people. That, Lord, everything we think, everything we do, everything we say will be done for your glory. And that holiness to the Lord would be something engraved on our minds constantly. Everything we look at, may we see that little placard uh, in front of us. Um, is this going to be holiness to the Lord if you do this? If you take this, if you eat this, if you drink this? Is this going to be holiness to the Lord? Father, give us grace to uh, make that uh, the test of everything we do. We just thank you, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.